This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 882, A Conversation with Keith Dowles. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. This is episode 882. I'm your host, Adam Chapman, and this is our conversation with Keith Dallas. Keith is a writer who works with uh, Tomorrow's Publishing. He's written numerous uh, history books. He's also the editor-in-chief of the American Comic Book Chronicles line, uh, and he also wrote the book Comic Book Implosion, which is all about the DC implosion of the 1970s. Uh, actually, that book is sold out currently through Tomorrow's Publishing uh, directly, uh, although you can still find it in some other retailers, but you can get a digital edition, uh, which is actually the ed- edition I ended up purchasing because I was just so excited to read this particular book. Uh, this book is centering on the DC implosion of the late 70s uh, and kind of explaining what happened through a really interesting uh, method, which is using original uh, articles and fan press at the time uh, from all the kind of key creatives who were involved in the, um, and also executives, not necessarily just creatives, uh, and kind of charting the progress of how the implosion actually happened and how, what the reactions were like kind of in real time, and then also juxtaposed with you know recollections from you know, back issue magazine, et cetera, over the years where people have talked about the implosion and the impact that it had. So it's a really fascinating book. I get into it in, in detail in this conversation with Keith. We also talk about his work on the American Comic Book Chronicles, as well as uh, the first book he actually uh, pitched to uh, Tomorrow's Publishing, which really is a testament to going after what you want, because you never know if someone might say yes. And so he really wanted to do something, uh, had never written a book before, and was able to you know sell a book idea to John Morrow. And just for good luck, he got it published just at the right time is another thing that we'll get into. And now he's had quite a fruitful uh, time working for John Morrow at uh, Tomorrow's Publishing. So uh, really great conversation. I really enjoyed talking to Keith, and I think you'll uh, really enjoy the listen. You can always email us at comicshenanigans at gmail.com, write the show on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and also listen to us on Stitcher. Thanks again, and I'll jump right into the conversation with Keith Dallas. Enjoy. Keith, welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. How are you today? Great, Adam. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I'm very excited to have you on the show and to talk about a, a few of your books, but, uh, but I guess before we really get into what you've done as a comic historian and as an author, we should talk about, you know, what, when did comics first enter your life? When did they first become a force? Oh boy, uh, I would say I started reading comic books probably around uh, five or six years old uh, with The Avengers and Flash. I know those were sort of the, the first two comic books that I latched on to as, uh, as a boy. Mm. I guess it's, so still- it's... It's been a lifelong sort of hobby, uh, devotion, you know, whatever word you want to use. <laughs> I guess I, I, I'm going to jump way ahead for a second, but given that those were kind of the characters that kind of drew you in, what kind of thrill was it to then be able to write the Flash Companion? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, you know, that that was a book I felt I had to put together. You know, once, because um, the quick story is, you know, John Morrow, you know, Tomorrow's Publishing were were releasing these companion volumes and I you know I said to my wife uh so I'm trying to remember the order in which I know there was a 
there was a Legion companion in, in particular, you know, a Legion of Superheroes companion that I really loved. And after I finished that, I said to my wife, I said, you know what, I, I have to pitch a Flash companion because uh, I'm just going to kick myself if, um, if I don't at least try to pitch that book to John Morrow. So I, you know, spent a, a few months, you know, putting together you know, an outline and, a, you know, uh, all the creators I was going to interview or profile and sent it off to John Morrow, who, who didn't know me from Adam, pardon the pun. <laughs> but, you know, and, and at that time, so we're talking about 2006, at that time I was um, the editor-in-chief of a, a website uh, called Comics Bulletin, uh, editing reviews, writing reviews, doing interviews, um, writing some columns. And I had no, that was my experience. You know, that was my resume. Mm-hmm. And I had, and you know, he, and he said, well, you know, what, what books have you written? I said, honestly, I haven't, I haven't done any books, but you know, and I just sent him, you know, a plethora of hyperlinks. I said, you could see my work here and here, you know, this, gives you an idea of my writing style and my interview style, fully expecting John to just say, you know what, we'll, we'll, thanks for the interest, but we're going to go with someone else. And I found out later that it was Michael Urey who already had designs on, the Fla- on, a, on a Flash Companion, and he very graciously uh, allowed me to, to do it. You know, he, he could have very easily said, no, I, I want to do this. But John, you know, approached him and said, hey, I, you know, I got this guy, Keith Dallas. He's, he's you know, put together an outline. He, he seems to have done a lot of the preliminary work. Do you mind if I tap him to do the book? And and he very graciously, you know, and to my internal, you know, gratitude said, yeah, no, go ahead. Give it to him. And so <laughs> that that was a fun book to put together. Uh from 2006, it was, it was ultimately published in 2008, so it took about a year and a half to, you know, put it together, and, you know, I assembled some uh, great contributors like, like John Wells and Jason Sachs and, and Jim Beard and a, and a few others, and, um, you know, I, it's, that, that, was, that was a fun book uh, to put together, I think, you know, um, ultimately, I think that was the easiest book to put, to put together. <laughs> I, uh, the... The postscript to that story is is that it's the only project for tomorrow's, for tomorrow's. The other projects that I've been involved in, I've made deadline. But the Flash Companion was the only project that I've done for tomorrow's where I actually not, I was able to provide John with a completed manuscript way in advance of the deadline. Uh, everything else has been <laughs> I've blown deadline I've blown every single deadline uh, <laughs> since then but uh, I think for valid reasons I would you know you'd have to ask John Morrow if, uh, what he thinks but um, and it's sort of a good thing that I was able to um, that I finished it way in advance because it moved me up in the queue you know he had all of these companion books lined up mm. Uh, there was going to be a Green Lantern companion. There was going to be a Brave and the Bold companion. There was going to be uh, trying to, uh, a Wonder Woman companion. I mean, he he had a good half a dozen to a dozen other companion books, DC Comics companion books. You know, he, he's released some other ones, you know, like a quality mm-hmm. 
Comics Companion and you know things like that, which are very good. But as far as DC Comics goes, he had he had a good half a dozen to a dozen lined up. And I hope he doesn't mind me saying, you know, publicly that um, what happened is DC uh, tripled their um, uh, licensing fee. Oh, wow. So to the point, my, my guess is that DC saw all these companion books being released and they just said you know what we're, we're not we're obviously not charging him enough money because he keeps producing these books so we're gonna we're gonna charge more and he they charge triple they tripled the fee which which ultimately would have made the volumes unprofitable I mean basically we would have basically broken even you know all, basically all the money that we would have generated would have gone to DC's licensing fee so that was uh, just out of the question, but right before they did that, John was able to solicit the Flash Companion at the previous fee. Mm. If so, if I had not, if, if I had not finished this book ahead of deadline, I would have been one of those books that essentially just got canceled. So there ended up, there was no Green Lantern Companion, there was no Wonder Woman Companion, there was no Brave and the Bold Companion. And if if not for, uh, you know, again, for, for beating the deadline, uh, none of the other Tomorrow's books that I've done would have ever seen the light of day. So I'm, I've sort of lucked out in that sense. It's interesting, too, because, I mean, I... It's a good testament to when you really want something, go for it. Doesn't matter what you yeah. know. Like just believe in yourself and, and try it anyway. Like the fact that you know you wanted, you saw that people were doing these books, and you're like, "This is the one I got to do." I don't know this person at all, but I'm gonna I'm gonna go to them and say, "Like I'm gonna do this. This is what I can do for you." That's pretty amazing that right. you know you had the belief in yourself to just take a chance because a lot of people would be like, "Oh, well, I don't know how to get in, so I'm not gonna do it." But you were like, "No, I'm gonna try yeah. it," and it, obviously it made a huge difference. And you've written many books on the strength of you know that initial contact with John that would not have happened if yeah. you didn't have that belief in yourself. And that maybe it's naivete, maybe yeah. it's you know who knows. But it is just like you you wanted to write this book. And this was the way to do it, and you went for it. Yeah, you know, I mean, it, I said, and, and my wife agreed with me. I said, "Well, what's the worst going to happen? The worst going to happen is I pitch, and he and he laughs in my face. Oh well, okay, then you know, and but at least I tried. You know, at least is, is the way I looked at it, and thankfully it uh, it led to you know um, a very fruitful uh, relationship with uh, tomorrow's publishing. So. I'll bring us back for a second. So we started at the beginning that, you know, you fell in love with comics pretty early, and then I kind of jumped us forward to Flash, obviously. Um, what were the, the circumstances that even brought you to Comics Bulletin? Because I, as you said, like, that's kind of your editor-in-chief of that, and then you, you know, pitched this book to John. But how do you even get to that point where you've done all this writing for Comics Bulletin and you've, you know, been in the industry um, in, in a new way? That was a, 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 my... I have um, my good friend Scott, who lived down the block from me as a child, uh, you know, when we were when we were young, uh, and he's also a lifelong comic books fan, uh, comic book reader, and it was he he won tickets to the 2003 San Diego Comic Con, um, and he was able to fly me thanks to this contest. 
uh, he and I were both able to go. He was living in Phoenix. Uh, I was in, you know, in New York, and he was able to convince uh, the people running the contest to fly me from New York. And, you know, at that time, I was more into, I was still reading comic books. I was still, you know, there was never not a time in my reading life that I wasn't reading comic books, but I was more into it. Because I also, I teach uh, English at um, Hofstra University in uh, Long Island, New York. And I was more into the academic pursuits than I was into any sort of comic book uh, career pursuits. And I was, I went to, 2003 San Diego Comic Con was the first time I went to San Diego Comic Con, and it I got hooked. I mean, it was <laughs> I. It's it, have you ever been? I've never had the to chance. San Diego no. Comic Con. Uh, San Diego, I've never had the chance to go. No. You you should go. One, I mean, it's an expensive trip now. That it, <laughs> it was in 2003. <laughs> I think in 2003, I think it was like 45 feet, 45,000 people attended, which which is still a lot. But it's not now, you know, it's now, well, I mean, prior to the pandemic, it was it's like 150,000 people. But that doesn't even count. It's, oh, Adam, I mean, it's it just, it's, and San Diego is such the perfect town for this convention because it takes over the entire town because 150,000 people, that's only the people within the convention center. It also spills out into the downtown district and there's things going on outside of the convention center and it just it's just really and it, it's san diego i mean you can't complain about the weather mm. you know it's just sort of like perfect weather <laughs> um and it's uh, like i said that that trip in particular hooked me and i said you know what i want to you know because uh, as, as, a, as a teenager that was my career pursuit was to become a comic book writer and like I said I it, it's it diverged into academia so I put the comic book uh, pursuits aside and and that trip to San Diego Comic-Con is really what reinvigorated my my interest in uh, in, in comp, not only comic book history but just you know the comic book industry so it was my friend Scott who, you know, suggested, so I was trying to brainstorm, like, okay, how, because you can't, listen, you, you can't just, you know, call up DC Comics and say, hey, can I write Justice League? I mean, it just, <laughs> that doesn't work, you know? So uh, I, you know, I'm we were trying to think of ways to, you know, at least, you know, get my foot in the door regarding just writing about comic books. And, and he suggested, so at that time, 2003, it was called SilverBulletComicBooks.com. Mm-hmm. And shortly thereafter, they changed their name. So, um, so yeah, so he said, hey, contact them, say, you know, you're willing to write some comic book reviews and interviews and do stuff like that. And, uh, and, and yeah, and that's, that's how I, you know, got attached to Comics Bulletin. Um, you know, did a lot of, you know, first wrote a lot of reviews, then they promoted me to editor and I was, uh, doing, you know, on a, basically on a daily basis, posting, editing reviews, posting reviews interviews, columns, things like that. Um, and I did that for a number of years before, you know, I was able to just sort of set that aside and, and work on uh, sort of more lucrative uh, pursuits, <laughs> you know, within, within the comic book industry. Of course. 
what started to stoke your interest in, in actually exploring the history of comics? I mean, obviously, you've been working on the American Comic Book Chronicles and putting those some of those books together. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm curious, yeah. obviously, like when, when you do the first book for John, what was the initial kind of um, response to that book? And what was the conversations with John like about, well, what do you do next? So, um, yeah, I mean, my, my introduction to Tomorrow's Publishing was that Legion Companion, because I'm, I'm also a huge Legion of Superheroes fan. And um, Glenn Cadigan really put together a great book, uh, The Legion Companion, again, just, and and that's that sort of, you know, opened the door for me regarding, or, or just even uh, proved to me, like, hey, wow, you can actually, you know, besides, say, writing comic books themselves, you can write about comic book history. And I said, you know, this, this might be even more up my alley than, than you know, writing comic books. So the, um, the, the Flash Companion sold, sold tremendously well, thank God. <laughs> um, the reviews were all uh, overwhelmingly po- uh, positive. Of course, you know, it's never unanimously positive, but it was, you know, overwhelmingly positive. And, and John said to me... Um, Oh, it was it was a few months after the Flash Companion got released. So we we're talking about 2008, and he said, "All right, so what do you want to do next?" And <laughs> we were tossing around a few ideas, and you know, and he reminded me, he's like, "Look, we're 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 shutting down the DC Companion line, so don't don't give me a topic that's DC focused." And and it almost as if he was reading my mind. He said, "And just so you know, don't give me a topic." that's Marvel Comics focused either because their licensing fees are even worse <laughs> than DC Comics. <laughs> so don't be pitching me the Avengers Companion because that this that's not that's not happening. So trying to think about a topic that um that obviously that I they feel comfortable writing and that would be um profitable and worth my time. So um I proposed a biography of a particular artist, and I don't want to mention this artist because um, John ended up actually publishing a biography of of this famous artist. And he said, uh, "He said, yes, you can do that book, but just so you know, it's not going to sell. It's, I mean, you're you're not going to make any money, and uh, for." For anyone listening who doesn't know that what tomorrow's is is basically a profit sharing, um, you know, endeavor. So I, you know, I I don't get a an advance. Uh, John doesn't, you know, pay me uh, a writing fee. We we share the profits. So he said, you know, I'll you can do that book. I'll publish that book, but you're not going to make any money off of that book. Hmm. So I went to my wife. I said, all right, well. Good news, bad news. Good news is he's willing to publish this book. Bad news is I'm not going to make any money off of it. And she said, "Yeah, come up with a different idea." She's like, "I," she's like, "I'm not going to let you write that book." I, she goes, "Come up with an idea that's going to make us money." So, and like I said, I don't want to mention the artist's name because John did end up publishing a biography of this artist, and he told me in private. He said, "Yeah, I was, I was exactly right. No one, no one bought it." <laughs> so. Uh, I feel bad for the person who wrote that book. Um, so, you know, I st- started thinking about, all right, well, so write what you know, right? I mean, the old, you know, writing adage. And I grew up in the 1980s, um, 
and I said, uh, the, the idea I came up with is a, is a book about 1980s, the 1980s comic book industry. Not just, not just DC and Marvel, but the 1980s is, is particularly when all of these direct market exclusive publishers began to prop up, like Eclipse and Kamiko and Dark Horse and Pacific and, um, uh, oh, I just I just blanked out on on a few uh, and first comics, you know, mm-hmm. really, as well as like such pub, uh, such self published works as Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, you know, and th- and I said, all right, let's do a history of the 1980s, and this was my pitch to John. I said I want to do a book about 1980s comic books, and so that so we don't have to worry about licensing fees because it becomes fair use mm-hmm. because we're writing about everything. You don't have to worry about DC or Marvel trying to slap on a licensing fee because we're not just focused on DC and Marvel. We're focused on everybody. I said, but let's do it in chronological order. So let's do it. You know, we'll start the book. will start in 1980 and then we're going year by year through 1989. So people get the sense of the movement of the decade, you know, so. So it's not just, okay, here's an article about Teenage Mutant Turtles, and here's an article about X-Men, and here's an article about, you know, uh, you know, first comics. That's just all slapped together. That it's, and I realized later (laughs) how, how challenging it is to turn comic book history into a narrative because it's not just research you're also trying to present it as if it's a history novel mm-hmm. you know as if you're you know you're not, you're not just spewing out facts and figures about comic books and comic book creators and comic book publishers you're trying to narrate comic book history year by year you're trying to identify the trends. You're trying to provide what it was like to be reading comic books in 1983, to get that sense of here's, here's what comic book readers, you know, here were their concerns, here were their, not, not just here, here's what they were reading, but here's what they were concerned about. Here's, you know, here's what they were debating um, and, and he loved it. He loved the idea. And he said, I don't want just a book about the 1980s though. <laughs> I want, I want to do all of comic book history from, you know, the thirties or, or pre 1940s to, and, and he capped it at the nineties initially. Mm-hmm. Um, and I said, well, I feel most comfortable writing a book about the 80s, but I'll tell you what, why don't we find other authors and I'll be the editor-in-chief and I'll you know, make sure that all the books are sort of aligned in style and uh, approach and format, obviously. So, that's, that, so that was 2000, so that, that was at the end of 2008. End of, t- end of 2008, beginning of 2009 is when, when we really, you know, figured out what to do with American Comic Book Chronicles. So it's, 
and I kid with John that he's taken years off of my life. You know that it's <laughs> it's because it is really what I everyone that we recruited for this project. I made sure to warn beforehand that th- that this project is going to consume you. It's really it's a monster that you have to wrestle to the ground and it, it's really going, it's an exhausting, it's ultimately when you're finished with it, you, you feel like you've climbed 10 Mount Everest, <laughs> but, uh, but as you're going through it and you're trying to not only get the facts right. And a lot of times the facts come down to a, he said, he said thing. Mm-hmm. So you're trying to figure out which creator it presents the more reliable account, uh, and I could, you know, <laughs> I could forward you some pretty angry emails that I've gotten over the years, um, and but at the same time presenting it in a way that it's not just, you know, a data dump. It's not just it's not just vomiting out facts. It's not an encyclopedia. That, that that I sort of bristle at that whenever I see a review of American Conflict Chronicles and they describe. It. They always, a lot of them use the word encyclopedia. It's not an encyclopedia, you know. Uh, it, you know, again, an encyclopedia is. Let's say you want to know something about Batman. Okay, so you go to the B section and you look up Batman. That's not what this is. This is again, it's a, it's a narrative. So uh, that, um, you know, like I said, I mean that, that sort of been my life since two thousand, late two thousand eight, early two thousand nine, where I've been working on one volume or another, either, you know, either writing or co-writing or quote unquote, just editing. Cause even, even just editing involves a lot of work, you know, putting timelines together and, uh, you know, fact checking the authors and things like that. But, but, you know, I'm, I'm very proud of what the series, what that series has become because it's, um, again, it's, it's a ton of work and I had, uh, and it's it's a series that I say I don't like to use the pronoun I when describing the series because mm-hmm. it's really a lot of people putting whether it's you know the authors themselves or the designers you know Bill Walco and uh, uh, David Greenewalt. Um, it's because I mean, it's really you know just flipping through the book I feel is is rewarding. Um, just looking at the manner in which, you know, you're just scanning through visually the visuals of the visual history of, of comic book history. Um, even, and, and, you know, we've, we've used, uh, people who have graciously, you know, read chapters and provided us with their feedback. And that's what I mean. It's really, it's, it's, it's a team effort. It's a take, it takes a lot of people to mm-hmm. produce each one of these volumes. One thing I really, I'm specifically speaking about the 90s one that I have in front of me at the moment, but um, one thing I really enjoyed about it was the extensive use, not just of, uh, obviously, you know, reproduction of comic book material, but a lot of the promotional material from the period. Um, I yeah. really loved seeing that because that's something that you never, like if they ever did like right. Marvel house ads of the 80s and 90s, like I would buy that book because I find yeah. it's, it's just so interesting to look at. So like 
you know, I'm, I, I'm relatively young. I was born in 83. So I was kind of coming of age in comics in their early nineties, kind of mid nineties period. That's where I really kind of got into it and seeing some of these house ads. I'm like, Oh my God, this takes me back in a way that even some yeah. of the comic book pages don't look just because it reminds me of flipping through and the excitement of seeing these things that I had never seen before. Didn't know some of the characters right. and, and just the promise of what those ads could be, which sounds maybe very juvenile, but it just, there's just the romantic notion of, you know, this gateway to this other world. And so the fact that yeah. you have so many of these, you know, kind of sourced and put in, I really enjoyed that piece of it. And maybe that sounds like a, a small aspect of it, but I thought it, it made everything feel more lived in more than just reprinting some of the interior work is because that's, as you said, this is what people were seeing. This is what people were feeling at the time. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad you said that because, <coughs> sorry, excuse me. Because that was important to me, that to provide, because like you said, you said you haven't seen this stuff before. Why haven't you seen it? Well, because, you, you know, how do people buy back issues nowadays? They buy the trade paperbacks. They buy, you know, they buy the masterworks. They buy the archives, you know, the omnibuses. Those and those books, understandably, don't reprint house ads. And these house ads are, you know, are gold. They're really... Um, you know, these unique views into how the publishers promoted their work. And, and like you said, um, trying to provide something that readers may not have. I mean, obviously there's, there's some sort of iconic visuals that we feel obligated to include in, in these volumes, but I do always try to push the house ads for the very reason that it's, it's likely something that most readers haven't seen because it's not collected in the in the trade paperback reprints mm -hmm. like i love that you have the um the dc versus marvel like the battles that you had to like fill in the the, the vote card like i love that yeah. you guys actually had one of those because i mean <laughs> like I, I can't imagine there's that many of those that are just kind of around or that people can you know find right, right. Yeah, I think that was. I think Jason provided that. Thankfully, uh, Jason Sachs had that, so he was able to give that to uh, David and uh, have David include. I think uh, either it was either it either came straight from Jason or it came from David. So, but but that's again back you know back to the, the sort of team effort in in producing these volumes. When, when you're when you're putting these together, like what kind of has there been a, a kind of a favorite kind of his moment of comic history that you maybe didn't know yourself that you got to kind of explore or discover either in the books you wrote yourself or that you were just editing? I say just editing. Well, I feel like I learned the most from the fifties volume, you know, from Bill Shelley's fifties volume, because that I, I definitely had a uh, sort of blind spot for that whole decade. I mean, obviously there's some, some, you know, signature books in there, say, you know, like showcase number four and, and mm -hmm. things like that. Um, and, uh, I certainly love EC comics like any other comic book historian does, but, but Bill Shelley really, you know, touched on, uh, trends and publications that I, I really knew nothing about because it's, it's a decade. I, I thought I was going to be most bored, but I thought the fifties volume was going to be the most boring for me to edit and it ended up being the most fascinating because of everything that I was learning, mm. you know, it makes sense, right? Because I mean, it's it's kind of like in I feel like in conventional 
comic book history, it was always kind of like, well, they came out, they came out, they're really big in like, you know, the, the forties and the wartime. And then you had, right. you had Wortham in the fifties. And then it was like, wait till Marvel comes. Let's, and then let's fast forward to the Marvel age in the sixties. Yeah. You know, it's like you, you, it's, and it's not fair, you know, because, uh, there, there were some, you know, great, uh, books being produced in the fifties. I mean, and, and just the whole, Publishers trying to figure out because because superheroes were at the beginning of the fifties were were you know declining in popularity and you see these publishers they're trying to figure out what to produce next you know whether it be horror or westerns or crime or you know and they're you know, romance you know and they're just latching onto one trend after another and and so it's it's on one hand. Um, a bit depressing because you could see that they they couldn't really figure it out. But for our for our purposes, it's it's fascinating. And and, the, and then the whole thing with the with the comics code and you know with Wortham and um, you know it's it's a really fascinating uh, decade. You know, and I'm glad uh, Bill was able to tackle it with such. Um, uh, with such knowledge and uh, sensitivity to to that era, mm-hmm. I'm curious, like how early on in the in the kind of planning process with John, where did you guys kind of decide that the '60s could not be done in one volume? Almost immediately, yeah. yeah. I remember, I remember, and it was, and that idea came to, uh, from John himself, from John, from John Morrow, uh, where he wanted to, uh, as we were putting together. A schedule. Now it's funny if anyone has like the first printing of the first 1960s volume. There's a release schedule, and I think like it was like all we originally intended like all the volumes to be released by like 2014 or something. Like that. And we, <laughs> we we didn't we didn't even come close. It wasn't it wasn't even close. So, but it just shows you how I guess naive we were about the amount of time and effort it took to produce these volumes but yeah almost immediately as as we were attaching authors to volumes uh john said i i want the 60s volume uh separated uh, excuse me, i want the 1960s separated into two volumes and i want the 1940s separated into two volumes i i think that was also he knew uh he could sell that he really wasn't sure about. He was very, very hesitant about the 1990s volume. He was very hesitant. He really thought that that was not going to sell well, and it it ended up selling out. You know, so um, so we proved him wrong. You know? Why do you Why do you think he felt that way? I think he was looking. He was considering his his own readership hmm. and how the tomorrow's readership is mainly focused between the 1940s and the 1980s. Mm. Um, and, you know, I mean, the 90s, of course, gets that bad rap. And so I think he was thinking, like, uh, again, uh, amongst his own readers, why would they Why would they read a volume about a decade of comic book history that they mostly loathe? Mm. Uh, but, I mean, what, what we learned is that with... People, 
uh, you know, readers, uh, they, they don't just buy one volume. They'll, they'll, buy, they'll, they'll buy the volume of their favorite decade, whether it's the 70s or the 80s uh, or the 60s. And then they start to, as any true comic book collector, start to buy other volumes in order to have the complete series. So it might, it might take them a long time because, you know, the, the books are a bit pricey. But um, but that that's what we've noticed with uh, the purchasing trends of, of American Comic Book Chronicles. I mean, they do have that nice, you know, the nice spine. Like, again, they're, they're nicely put together yeah. books, and they look nice, like, uniform together. In terms of the kind of the, the front design with the kind of the, the white split with the, you know, kind of graphic uh, on the right-hand side, what was what kind of led you guys to that kind of decision in terms of differentiating its visual look? For each volume? Yeah. So, you... you are you talking about uh, the the uh, the covers themselves? Like yeah, the, 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 the covers colors, themselves. The col- so okay, so we knew obviously the '60s, the Silver Age. So we had a silver spine. Mm. Um, we the with the '40s. So I'm looking at it now. So with yeah, I, I forget why he chose green for the '50s, and but I know he definitely wanted silver for. Uh, the 60s volumes, and then from there, trying to figure out, yeah, so the, yeah, the 1940 volume has is gold, so, you know, golden age, uh, and then just, you know, choosing, uh, trying to figure out which volume should be green, you know, 1980s volume is red, 1990s is um, uh, blue, so... Uh, I don't know if, I, if that's answering your question, um, but well, that was that was I left that decision to him. Uh, that's not really something I had mm-hmm. much say about. I, I sort of let that be a publisher decision. Okay. When uh, so the, with the with the ones that you actually did end up co-writing, which is your personal favorite? Which I know I'm sure. Well, is, yeah, definitely the '80s. Yeah, the 80s. definitely the '80s because it's the one I, you know, that's the decade I grew up in. So that's the decade that. Um, I'm most fond of, uh, but the certainly co-writing the '70s and the '90s uh, was was just as rewarding. Um, and if and if anything, Adam, what what you these volumes don't get easier; they get harder, <laughs> you know, because you are you know with every volume you're reminded of you, you again you you're. You now have to align the new volumes with what's already been released mm. in terms of style, in terms of what you're presenting. You got to make sure that information that you're providing in one volume doesn't contradict information in another volume, you know? Mm. Uh, and so that's what I mean by it. it becomes even more difficult with each volume because now you you have to remind yourself of, of what of the information that has been presented in the other volumes and uh, make sure that it's aligned with those volumes. So I have to ask, so one of the initial reasons first why I wanted to really talk to you on the show, I mean, I love the work on the American Comic Book Chronicles, but really the one that really kind of blew my mind about it was the comic book implosion. 
which is okay. the, the oral history of DC Comics circa 1978. So, as I've already right. said, like this is obviously a period that predates me. So I wasn't even around. I don't have a nostalgia for this period. But I've obviously, I like comic book history. I like hearing people's stories about it. I like interviewing mm-hmm. creators so I can kind of fill in the blanks on this history. I love reading kind of back issue and that kind of stuff to, again, fill in these blanks of, the, of this, this large tapestry of American comics. And then you have this book, right. which is a very narrow slice of DC history. Um, but yeah. I just, again, I, I can't imagine, I'm sure there are, but a very niche kind of <laughs> history of comics, but I just found it so engrossing and fascinating. So I just wanted to talk to you about, first of all, how do you convince John Morrow to publish this book? Um, and then, you know, how do you, how do you, there's so much painstaking work here to go through so much of the fan press that existed at the time to pull out yes. and create this narrative and actually work through chronologically how everything was kind of coming together. And I just find that fascinating. And also I can only imagine how daunting it must've been, first of all, to create a narrative spine that would make sense and then also find everything to chronologically put it together. Yeah, well, first of all, you know, I really appreciate, uh, you know, your compliments uh, about it. Um, it. It's definitely, as far as the origins of the book, it, it, it actually has its roots in American Comic Book Chronicles, because um, I wrote the chapter, the 1978 chapter uh, of the 1970s volume, and I believe there's, like... The DC explosion slash implosion, um, and if, if for anyone who's listening who's not aware of, of this event, it's, a, it's one of the most infamous events in comic book history in which nearly half, in, in a very short period of time, DC Comics uh, ordered this, again, quote-unquote explosion. They, they were... Ex- dramatically expanding their line, increasing the price point. And then it, it lasted all of, well, publishing lasted three months. It actually sort of lasted less than that, where the DC's corporate owners uh, ordered a reduction of the line. So the DC explosion became the DC implosion, and nearly half of DC's titles got canceled, and a lot of people sort of lost their jobs or lost their assignments. So it's really this, again, particularly with DC Comics, it's a very, it's it's arguably their most infamous uh, event. And as I was working on that chapter, I realized, you know, if, if you look at the 1970s volume, it's maybe, maybe four pages. I think it's, it's, I think it's three pages to narrate the explosion and implosion, and I, once I finished it, but that's all the space I had. I mean, I couldn't, you know, I really couldn't justify, you know, with each, and, and that's another challenge of American Comic Chronicles is that you realize you, you have, you know, what, 320 pages to narrate an entire decade. Obviously, again, you, you know, you have double that for the 1940s and 1960s, but it still, it becomes an exercise in, what to include and what to exclude. You can't, you, you can't, I've, uh, Adam, I mean, I can't tell you how many emails I'll get where someone will ask, hey, well, how come you didn't discuss this? And it'll be every decade, you know. <laughs> hey, how come in the 1990s volume we didn't discuss, I literally got one two weeks ago, someone asked me, why didn't I include Sonic the Hedgehog? <laughs> and, okay, you know, and I'm not putting down anyone who, 
who enjoys Sonic the Hedgehog. Obviously, that's a very famous uh, video game. And, and I said, you know, I very respectfully replied. I said, unfortunately, American Comic Book Chronicles is it's a macro version of comic book history, which means you, we we cannot we just do not have the space to mention everything. So Sonic the Hedgehog was not part of, say, a larger trend that we were commenting on. So I couldn't just wedge in a mention of Sonic the Hedgehog. Uh, and I said, um, I said, that's why I look at, you know, I think you mentioned, uh, you know, Alter Ego and Back Issue, the uh, the magazines that Tomorrow's publishes, because th- those those publications are very much a micro view of, Amer- of, of comic book history, because they'll, they'll focus on a very specific uh, subject, and really, you know, very thoroughly documented. So you get you get a lot more information about a specific topic in Back Issue and Alter Ego than you will in American Convo Chronicles. Anyway, so I realized in the 70s volume, like, wow, you know what? We're, we're just sort of scratching the surface about the DC explosions slash implosion. And I realized that John Wells had had already done a lot of research. He had written, he'd already written uh, several articles about the DC implosion and he's, he's already done extensive research. So I said to him soon after the 1970s volume was published, I said to him, you know what? Let's, we should put together a DC implosion book. Um, I said, it's right up our alley. I said, you, I said, it's, it's certainly not going to, I don't think it's going to be as taxing as a, a volume of American Convo Chronicles because we've already done the research. We've already, you already, you know, we, uh, you, you know, we've already done a lot of the groundwork. We've already collected a lot of the quotations. And I said also, because, and, and a lot of this, Adam, was just, you know what, I needed a book just to get away from the format of American Comic Chronicles, which, again, is, is sort of straightforward narration. Hmm. And I said, let's see if we can just string together, because like you said, I mean, there's all these the fanzines from that era that, that are already, that were documenting the DC explosion and the DC implosion. I said, let's see, let's, you know, string this together as well as um, interviews that have been conducted since then and, and creators perspective of that time. And I said, I think we can, I think we can thread together, uh, you know, uh, essentially an oral history. It's not really an oral history that we're sort of, you know, technically, I guess it's not an oral history. I don't know what you, you, know, you want to call it an oral narrative or something like that. But, uh, but getting having people understand that event through snippets from interviews and from news articles. And Adam, that was that was sort of again I. I I decided on that form, and also, as you know, I mean, there are there are lists. We have lists. We have description of issues, things like that. So there is mm-hmm. filler. Um, but that was the format. Is what, like I said, I mean, mostly I I chose that format because I I, I needed a break 
from the type of format presented in American Comic Book Chronicles. Um, and it's, but it's also, it gave me the most concern because I didn't know how people would react to it, you know, cause it's, uh, as I say in my introduction, it, it sort of requires a lot of, I, I'm not, we're, we're not holding your hand hmm. and telling you what things mean for the most part. I mean, we do have some, you know, editorial, uh, insertions, but for most part, we're trying to allow you to read what other people were saying and then for you to, you know, come to your own conclusions. Uh, and so you asked, okay. So I said that to John Wells. I said, you know what, let's put this book together. And he said, uh, all right, you know what, let me think about it. And I, I already know when, when John Wells tells me that it means he's sort of trying to very politely, very politely turn me down. <laughs> And so I waited a couple of years, and then it was, we were fast approaching on the, um, you know, the uh, uh, the 40th um, anniversary of the DC implosion. I said, look, it's now or never. You know, uh, we're, you know, this, if, if this book's going to be published, it's got to be published in 2018, because that'll be 40 years uh you know, the 40th anniversary of the DC implosion. So I guilted them into it. I know, I know I've done enough work with John Wells. I know how to guilt him into doing something with me. So, <laughs> um, so, you know, we, and, and again, it really didn't take us that long to put it together. Well, I should, I guess I should back up and say, we pitched it to John Morrow and he loved it. He loved the idea. I thought he was going to, um, object because once again, it's, it's sort of, it, it's an exclusive, DC, or it's focused on a DC hmm. uh, event. So I thought he was going to just reject it on the basis like, oh, no, 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 what's what's the difference between this and the Flash Companion? Uh, so thankfully when we pitched it, we didn't pitch it as the DC Implosion Companion because I think that would have gotten it automatically rejected. Uh, I think we, we pitched it with the title Comic Book Implosion hmm. and then said, what if we put DC Comics in the subtitle? So that was that was enough. John felt that was enough, you know, to satisfy fair use. Mm. And uh, but but ultimately, you know, and I think this is um, a testament to, uh, I guess, our relationship with John Morrow is that he uh, sort of appreciates the ideas that we come up with, and and he'll you know he'll be honest about how well it can sell and whether or not it's it's a worthwhile topic. Um, and it didn't put us, it, it didn't take us very long to put it together, relatively. Mm-hmm. Again, in comparison to American Comic Book Chronicles, which that takes years, each volume takes years to put together. This, I, I want to say we, we put this together, I want to say it took us like six months to put it all together. Because again, we had, we already had a lot of the quotes. Uh, we had to do some more digging. Um, and, and the engine just making sure everything's in chronological order. Uh, I think it took me like a week or so to put the, those lists together. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, John was uh, partially recycling some material that he had, he had written already. And, you know, and, and, and like you said, I mean, it was definitely one of those projects where I just said, you know, I don't, I don't know how many people are going to be interested in this. Because like you said, it's, I mean, it's really narrowly focused. But, 
it's a book I wanted to write, and okay, you know, and uh, once it came out, and um, it, you know, again, the the reaction it got, again, there were there were people who hated the format. I mean, and they, um, and I knew that we anticipated that. We we knew there were going to be people that just did not like the format, and and they are completely entitled mm-hmm. uh, to that opinion, and. Uh, and, and but but thankfully that seems to be the minority view. I mean, thankfully most people seem to have you know really enjoyed that uh, again that that oral history format that we put together. Mm-hmm. It's interesting reading it. Um, I mean, I, I read it after reading Nuff Said, which is obviously also a Tomorrow's book, and uh, yeah, yeah, and and it reminded me of that same kind of back and forth nature of it in terms of you know, yeah. in relation to timeline. So that I was, it was almost like I was, I was ready for that because I was used to that. So it kind of right. worked. And so I actually thought I liked a lot of how you also pivoted from like a 2018 recollection and then back into, you know, something from the fanzines. And I think the, for me, the maybe underlying story that I found so fascinating was how frank people were with, you know, the comic reader and the comics journal, um, about yeah. what was going on at the time. Like it was just kind of blew my mind because it wasn't it didn't always feel like the most maybe maybe i'm just used to the slicker more polished view of people in media training type of idea in, in the more modern era whereas this is where people, yeah. people really you know going to task on things and being really frank and honest and, and in ways yeah. i wouldn't have expected and i was like i can't believe that this happened like you know people would have these types of things that, that were printed and people could read this and really understand kind of more about the inner workings of these companies that even we know now, even though there's a lot being published or a lot, you know, kind of out there. But I think this was a much yeah. more frank uh, interpretation of what was going on. Yeah, you know, and I'm glad you reminded me about enough said because I know that was a reason why John Morrow, you know, didn't have qualms about publishing comic book composure because he at that time was working on enough said and so by chance we're you know i'm pitching a book that's using a format similar or almost identical to what he was working on so he had no qualms about that but we were also you know john wells and i were also uh we wanted to make sure that certain there, there are some there are some misconceptions about the DC implosion that sort of just gets perpetuated year after year. Mm-hmm. And we, we wanted this book to sort of set the record straight regarding those. Like, I think the most common misconception is that, well, DC's parent company canceled all these titles because the DC explosion was a failure. Uh, no, that's that's not the case. This is remember we're, this is 1978, so we're still talking about the newsstand distribution. This is before the era of comic book stores. I mean, there were comic book stores, of course, but not many. Um, so they were the DC explosion was essentially canceled six weeks after it was launched. It would have been impossible to. No, based on how newsstand sales get reported, it would have been impossible for DC's parent company to know how the DC explosion was selling. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were reacting to sales from months earlier when <laughs> when a devastating winter uh, just killed uh, 
comic book sales. But that, but that was, and the other misconception is, you know, that Marvel was thriving, that DC's suffering, uh, DC was suffering, but, but across the street, Marvel was thriving. No, Marvel had its own implosion. Mm-hmm. You know, that we tried to, you know, made sure to, to document that not not long after DC canceled most of its titles, Marvel also canceled a lot of its titles. So, the and what, what was really happening, and so we tried to sort of reconfigure this infamous event into a watershed moment when the publishers realized they could, they could no longer rely on the newsstand, that the newsstand distribution was literally killing them. And when I was writing the 1980s volume of American Convert Chronicles, Paul Levitz even said that to me. Uh, he said, if, if not for the direct market, if not for the proliferation of comic book stores, the comic book industry, as we know it, would probably have died in like 1982 or 1983. It was just unsustainable. And the DC implosion sort of proved that. And to their credit, you know, Jeanette Kahn and, and Paul Levitz, uh, realized that they had to find a different way of selling comic books. And obviously that became the specialty comic book stores. Um, and so that that's when it's after the DC implosion that they started to look into, you know, support, you know, looking into trying to support the burgeoning direct market in 1978 there were just there just weren't many stores but within a few years they started to really you know proliferate um and that and it saved the industry unfortunately we reached a point where we've relied too long on the direct market and we're sort of been searching for a post direct market solution um i think you know crowd Funding, you know, like uh, Indiegogo and mm-hmm. and Kickstarter, have provided those uh, solutions, but that those solutions don't help DC or Marvel. That's a completely different topic, though, Adam. I mean, that's you know, we're <laughs> off we're off on a tangent there. That's okay. One one thing that uh, really struck me is fascinating because of the level of complexity and detail that they went to is that when you have uh, Jeanette Kahn's publishoral sorry, publisher, um, where she kind of details all the math of why they're about to do this, you know, this big change in terms of format. Like, it really struck me that I was, like, surprised that they went to such efforts to try and explain it and and trying to, you know, use the percentages. And I'm like, I don't know if this would have helped or hurt because if you have to explain it in that much detail to try and convince someone that they're still getting a good product – you know, yeah. should should you be doing it at all? And it, it, right, right. it, it just it, it was really fascinating. Right. Again, that you know, at the time, especially you know, they're, they're still thinking that these are for kids or younger people. These are for impulse purchases. Uh, that they're not yeah. really taking it as seriously as you know, kind of a you know, an older audience. And yet, they're giving them like math homework to be like, don't worry. Oh, yeah, we're giving you more for page. Yeah, you know? it's really they fascinating. Know that, yeah, it's right. The decision to jump from 35 cents to 50 cents, which might not seem like a big deal to an audience in 
2021 that's you know paying four dollars and five dollars an issue but back then that's that's a that's a huge bump um and uh what what john and i write in the conclusion is that um the dc you know the, the legacy of the dc implosion is that dc was proven wrong that they made a mistake in trying to increase the price of their comic books by such a dramatic amount but uh again i i feel Jeanette Khan was proven right that here was here was the problem um and i'm going to try to you know summar, summarize it as best i can adam is that the, the newsstand just no longer cared about comic books because so you had comic books that are selling for 35 cents Meanwhile, you have Time Magazine and Newsweek and Sports Illustrated. They're all selling for a buck, you know, or or buck fifty. I'm trying to remember the exact, you know, price point. And not for nothing. But guess what? Sports the the newsstand is selling more copies of Sports Illustrated and Time Magazine and Newsweek. So the comic books have have truly become an afterthought to the newsstand. They're not the newsstand dealer is not making. It's not making very much money by selling comic books, um, and so that was the fault of the comic book industry is that they kept trying to keep the price point down in order to make it more attractive for kids. But what they really did was turn the newsstand against them mm-hmm. because the newsstand just didn't care. They were making far more money selling TV Guide and Time Magazine and Sports Illustrated than they were selling The Avengers or Spider-Man or Batman. Um, and, that, and, and you know, because when you reference that publishorial, that, that's something that Jeanette Kahn is, was trying to explain, is that, you know, uh, we're, we're also trying to appeal to the dealers to keep us, you know, to, to you know, display us. Uh, but by that point, the newsstand uh, system had become so corrupt; it just there was there was no it, it, there was there was no salvation. The, mm-hmm. the comic book industry again just could not be. Uh, there was no there was not going to be a comic book industry renaissance through newsstand distribution, which you know, I'm, again was was one of the larger points that John Wells and I were trying to make, you know, with the book. Mm-hmm. There's there's um, a news story you guys printed. Uh, it was about it was Archie Goodwin in 1978, and I this this lo- this uh, this quote I think really stuck with me because I think it's really interesting to think about. It. He said, "I think that larger format books succeed with a smaller, steadier market, but the largest audience mm-hmm. buys the cheaper format. Comics are a general casual reading material that can be read in one sitting. If you move too far away from that, you lose a lot of impulse buyers." And that stuck mm-hmm. with me because I feel like, especially in these days where I guess, you know, comics became more, more expensive, but they started, you know, decompressing their stories and it felt like you weren't mm. getting a full story with that, you know, four yeah. or five dollars. And, right. you know, it's interesting, like, you know, you if you look at like a video game, more expensive, but the hours of content that you get in there right. versus right. the comic book is, I mean, it, right. it's understandable that there starts to become sort of a, you know, if a kid has money, are they going to buy a comic book that they might... You know, yeah. even if they read it a lot, they're probably not going to get as much out of it out of that one comic that they would, you know, part of a video game, so to speak. Like if you give them the same yeah. stack of comics versus you know one video game, which one might they get more time out of? 
it's you know it's yeah. unfair to comics, I guess. But that's just there's different levels of entertainment now, and that's why they have the, you know this over reliance on this older market that you know grew up with these things yeah. and wants to stay in them. And then what happens when we all die? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and also, look, I mean, in in 2021, the most profitable combo publications for DC and Marvel are their trade paperbacks. You know, they're, they're not making much money off of the, that single issue. And like you said, the, the 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 casual reader doesn't feel like he or she is getting um, great value for that single issue, and so that's why you know the whole wait for the trade. You know, a lot of people uh, will just wait for the the trade paperback. The collectors they'll they'll essentially get it cheaper buying the trade than than if they you know bought it. Individually, so I think it's. I mean, you know, this this is in a much you know sort of larger discussion regarding comic book consumer buying habits and whether the publishers by by perpetuating them are just hurting themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, because I mean, the data is out there that listen uh, over the past few years comic book sales have not gone down. They've gone up, you know, in terms of revenue. Um, and, but a lot of it is from that trade market, you know, from, from the, the, the trade paperbacks and, the and it's, you know, I, I've said this in, in some other interviews that what, what's been hurting the comic book industry over the past, 15 years or so was its reliance on diamond, you know, mm. cause diamond was taking, was taking more and more profit away from both the publishers and the store owners. And that ended up, I mean, I, you know, the fact that we're now we're in, we're in a watershed moment. Who knows? Maybe, Twenty years from now, I'll be writing a book about 2020 and 2021, and and when DC divorced itself from Diamond, because I think that was arguably the most significant comic book industry um, event of the past two years. You know, because Diamond was uh, essentially a monopoly over the past what since. Heroes World disbanded, you know, since over the past 25 years. Oh, yeah. I mean, I my most of my comic book kind of buying life was in a Diamond era. You know, like, I, yeah. I, I, I didn't really start buying comics on a regular basis until I was maybe 13. Like, I was maybe later than a late bloomer when it came to comics. But by the time I'm getting in, right. it's like 96. So for most of my comic reading, you know, lifetime, Diamond... I, I was used to, you know, the Diamond catalog or, you know, previews. Every, they had everything yeah. because it was the only public, you know, it was the only distributor. It was just the way it was. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it's been to the industry's detriment. Because, um, again, you know, as, you know, if you read the 1980s volume or even the 1990s volume, there used to be a time where there were many comic book distributors mm. to comic book stores and, and stores... If they were dissatisfied with one distributor, they could go with a different distributor. And Diamond, again, has been, you know, uh, for reasons that we don't have time to get into, but they've been a monopoly for the past 25 years. No one has been able to 
uh, there, there have been some really weak attempts to try to muscle in on Diamond's, you know, hegemony, and they've all been, again, once Diamond had, uh, you know, secured Marvel and DC and Image and, you know, IDW, well, then, you know, that's it. Once they had exclusive deals with those publishers, you know, no other distributor was going to be able to mm-hmm. enter the field. Um, and the industry is so small enough that the, the Department of Justice is not going to break up the diamond monopoly, you know. So it, it, it's just, they just don't care. Um, so they, they even ruled that in, in the year 2000 where they basically said Diamond is not... Um, yes, Diamond is the only distributor, but they're not a monopoly. Mm. Uh, and, and that... I know a lot of people, a lot of publishers and a lot of store owners were upset with that ruling uh, because you, you, you'd be hard-pressed to find a comic book store or a publisher that did not have a complaint about Diamond. <laughs> so, you know, and that's... So, you know, we're talking about the parallels here between the DC implosion and what's going on today because you're, you're looking at a moment in 2021, a moment of complex history where we're transitioning from, you know, a diamond, a diamond dominance to what comes next, you know, and um, we'll see what happens. I mean, there will be a comic book industry. I mean, Kickstarter mm-hmm. and Indiegogo have proved that. They're, I mean, there, there are some creators, they're making, crazy amount of money with their, you know, Kickstarter and Indiegogo projects. So the money's out there. You know, people, you know, people are willing to spend, uh, and, but the comic book store itself might become soon extinct. Mm-hmm. When, uh, oh, well, I want to, I want to ask you about, a, uh, I know in the last couple of years, Jerry Conway's talked about how he thinks that his, his generation of writers kind of really irreparably hurt the industry by kind of making it more adult um, and kind of making it less kid focused. How do you feel about that kind of interpretation? Oh uh, yeah, I can see, I can see where he's coming from. Um, at the same time, you know, there, there have been efforts. There were efforts in the nineties and in the early two thousands by both Marvel and DC to provide a more kid friendly line, you know, like justice League Unlimited. Mm-hmm. Uh, DC came out with Justice League Unlimited. That was uh, quote unquote kid friendly, Batman Adventures, uh, Marvel Age. You know, uh, so and it didn't sell. And I, I, again, to me, it always comes back to distribution. You know, it always comes back to how these products are getting into um, the public's hands and the dissolution of the of the newsstand system on, on one hand was necessary, but on another hand, it like, it, it, it took away that more casual, you know, impulsive purchase that you were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, what have, you know, kids are no longer looking to comic books. They're looking to video games. I mean, I, I don't know if, how that could have been avoided, given what the in, what the video game industry has become, mm-hmm. you know. Um, I mean, the Department of Justice is far more interested in the video game industry than they are in the comic book industry. I'll tell you that, because yeah. you know, because of the amount of money that the video game industry 
I mean, the video game industry, what, now there's more money generated by the video game industry than there is by movie companies, I think. I think you're right. Maybe don't quote me on that, but I, I think that's what I read. I could be wrong, but I thought I thought that's what I read. So, I don't know. I mean, again, I see where, where Jerry is coming from. Um, at, at the same time, he, he might be um, ignoring a sort of a, a trend that maybe the comic book industry just couldn't compete with. Um, mm. I don't know. You know, it, it's um, because again, I was one of those. Well, I was one of those "quote unquote" kids in the '80s that reveled in comic books becoming more mature mm. in in Watchmen, in you know, Dark Knight Returns, in you know, I. Uh, you know, again, these are books that that I felt like the comic book industry was maturing as I was maturing. Mm-hmm. You know that. So when I was ten years old, I was reading books that were appropriate for a ten-year-old. But when when I was a twenty-year-old, it, it's as if the industry was was keeping up with my age, and mm-hmm. so they were providing books um, appropriate for a twenty-year-old and for a thirty-year-old and blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. But how to I guess what happens to the new five year old though right or the new ten year old yeah you know that that yeah and I, and I understand that's Jerry's point uh, again I, I do feel that the, particularly in the early 2000s Marvel and DC were trying to provide books that were appropriate for those age groups and they, they just didn't sell mm-hmm. and I come back to because of the sales venue, because where those books were being sold, I mean, I think, you know... I think you're right. I mean, I think it does all come down to distribution. Like, when I think about where did I first buy comics before I was, like, a regular comic buyer, they were at the convenience store. My parents would bring, you know, go to the grocery store, and so I'd go over to the magazine rack, and they'd have a spinner rack of comics, and I would just stand there, you know, flipping through the comics and maybe buy a couple while they were doing their grocery shopping. So I wasn't bugging them, and I... I didn't mind going to the store because I got to see comics, you know? So yeah. there, there was yeah. that, you know, that distribution. When I've talked to all these creators and talking about when they first got introduced to comics, so many of them were like, oh, my dad took me to the, you know, the gas station and, you know, whenever we'd fill up, I'd get a comic or something like that. It was always, right. you know, right. a parent grabbed something as an impulse purchase that was there, um, partially to yeah. keep them quiet, but they got, to, you know, to read something. It wasn't very expensive and it was easy to find. And, you know, if, if my, you know, if I didn't go get comics at a comic book store i don't know how my son would ever read comics because where would he yeah. see them he would see the cartoons maybe and then he'd see movies but that's not directing him to the original material yeah here's why they here's why the industry couldn't uh, they couldn't remain uh, uh, here's why the industry the comic industry essentially did a complete divorce from the newsstand and it was uh, jim shooter who explained it to me when i was writing the 80s uh, volume of American Comic Chronicles. Um, the newsstand system was completely corrupt by by you know, well definitely by the time of the DC implosion, but but years before that. Um, I, I think I've read I've read comments from other comic book historians say you could trace it back to the late '60s when the when the, the when the corruption was really starting to uh, become evident. All right. So, Adam, let's say let's say you're Marvel Comics, okay? 
I'm I'm a newsstand distributor, and we'll say we'll say my wife is um, a newsstand dealer. Okay. Okay. So, I'm I'm the distributor. You you ask me how many copies of Avengers I want this month. So of course you know I ask my I ask my all my shop you know all my all my newsstand dealers. Okay, blah blah blah. How many copies? So I report back to you. I'm like, okay, you know what, Adam? Give me a thousand copies. Give me a thousand copies of the Avengers. Okay. You give me a thousand copies. Now, I, again, for reasons that I explained earlier, I actually don't distribute a thousand copies of Avengers to my dealers because guess what? They're really not interested in the Avengers. Again, they're interested in, in, in Sports Illustrated and Time Magazine. Those are the more important things. If I've got space left over in my truck, okay, so I'll throw, I'll throw some Avengers uh, into the truck and it makes its way to the, to those dealers. All right. So now remember the advantage of direct market stores versus newsstand is that direct market stores, there are no returns. If you're sell, if you're providing a thousand copies of Avengers to a store, they're paying for a thousand copies. If they don't sell those thousand copies, that's their tough luck. You know, those copies don't go back to you. AKA Marvel Comics. The newsstand, though, remember, they they provided returns. So you provided me with a thousand copies of Avengers. Let's say I sell seven hundred of those copies. That's actually a really good uh, rate. You know, that's a great sell through mm-hmm. rate. That's a seventy percent sell through rate. That's you know you you could you know you could survive on that. But here's the thing. Um, uh, so I'm not reporting to you that I sold seven hundred copies. I'm reporting to you that I sold four hundred copies. Mm. You know, even though I did sell seven hundred copies, I'm not reporting that to you. Uh, and guess what? You don't have any way of proving. That I'm lying. It's all you know based on affidavits. Okay, so I'm comp- I'm completely fudging the numbers. So now your seventy percent sell through rate suddenly becomes a forty percent sell through rate. So now I'm only paying for four hundred. You're not, and of course you're not getting those those unsold copies back. You don't need them. You don't want them. Instead, what I'm taking with the unsold copies is I'm you know I'm I'm you know, providing them to, you know, I'm selling them through the black market. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm providing them to sort of unscrupulous, uh, comic book, uh, store owners who are, you know, getting them for pennies on the dollar or, you know, and, um, so, so think about that, Adam, I'm making out like a bandit as a, as a newsstand distributor, I'm making out like a bandit because I'm, I'm screwing you over, you know, nine ways a Sunday, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm under reporting your sales. Uh, and I'm also taking the unsold copies and, and making my money that way. Um, and by the way, I'm not just doing this to you. I'm not just doing this to Marvel Comics or DC Comics. I'm doing this to everybody. I'm doing this to, you know, to Time Magazine and Sports Illustrated and TV Guide. I'm underreporting everything. But what's the advantage that Time Magazine has over a copy of Avengers? Advertising sales. Mm-hmm. That... Time Magazine and Sports Illustrated and TV Guide, back then at least, made significant revenue selling 
ads. Marvel Comics is selling Sea Monkey ads. Marvel Comics <laughs> is selling, you know, toy soldiers and, you know, you know, Jim Shooter told me that one time um, an advertising manager told him that they were making they were they were collecting less money in ads than the page was actually costing them. Oh my god! And he was he, yeah, exactly. he was just like he's like that makes no sense. He's like the why are we why are we even bothering with ads? And and the guy you know so looked at him. He's like well we've got to collect something, you know. But that was the advantage that again that the bigger bigger magazines had over comic books is that they didn't care those magazines didn't care that the distributor was you know was robbing them blind because they were already making their money on um you know on advertising as jim shooter told me he's like hugh hefner he would be giving away those copies of playboy if if he could because that's where he, he it didn't matter to him what money and if you remember there used to be you know like you'd see on tv often like you know sports illustrated would have these like special deals like oh you could subscribe to sports illustrated for 25 cents a copy mm-hmm. well, how are they able to sell it for 25 cents a copy because again they're making so much money off of advertising you know so this is why the, so so think about it you know because the newsstand distributor is is robbing the, the comic book industry blind. The, you know, um, Paul Evans told me that the comic book industry was, were, they were essentially printing three copies to sell one copy. And that's just not sustainable. Uh, especially since your revenue is completely dependent on sales. You could not count on advertising. So they had to divorce themselves. And by the way, the, the newsstand it's still corrupt, but now there's there's sort of there's no newsstand, but yeah. that's a different story. <laughs> um, so the the, the, the comic book industry had to divorce themselves from the newsstand. You know, it, it, it's and I understand like like what the, what you described from your childhood is very typical, and it's you know it's 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 really you know sort of essential. It, it was essential for these books to be sold in stationery stores and grocery stores, and like you said, you know. Uh, you'd stop at a, a gas station, and there, and it'd be there. And we don't have that anymore. But unfortunately, it's it's for a very good reason why, you know, we don't have that. But it, but back to sort of Jerry Conway's point is that well, we sort of needed a way to replace that. And and yeah, so we've had a lot of you know superhero cartoons and movies, and but it that it hasn't hooked. Uh, enough kids into reading comic books because those comic books are not being written for them and you know so I do see where he's coming from I think though there's a bigger picture that that uh, you know for me it always comes back to distribution always comes back to distribution Mm -hmm. rather than content and as you said it it does feel like it was inevitable like as you had more people who grew up with comics you know who read comics were a fan of comics that they would want to make comics but you know maybe more mature than they were younger right and so that you have yeah. this continuous kind of mature, maturation of the of the content because people have grown up on it it's interesting that you look at the you know kind of original 
comics, the people, those people, their original inspirations were not obviously comics because they weren't around, but they were actual, right. uh, you know, other art or other books. And so they're drawing from yeah, very yeah. different reference points, whereas now yeah. we're multiple generations into comics where everyone's kind of borrowing from the previous generation's kind of material as opposed to, you know, yeah. new sec- you know, new things to kind of bring into the medium sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's... Uh I think there are solutions to these problems. Um, it's, but they're, they're rather radical, mm-hmm. you know, and it would be rather, it would be pretty shocking to, I think, the majority of the uh, reader base, which I think is why most publishers uh, just don't want to risk that. At least that's what it's been, you know, the way for years. Mm-hmm. Do, do you think that you'll ever do an American Comic Book Chronicles for 2000 onwards? Oh yeah, I'm working. Yeah, I'm working on that right now. Oh, you're working on it yeah. right now. Okay, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. The the um, yeah, I'm working on that right now. Uh, I mean, I just started. I'm still. I'm on the year 2000, literally. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I've got a long way to go. And the um, the other volume that's being worked on now is the second 1940s volume. Kurt Mitchell, uh, who did an incredible job with the first volume, the first 1940s volume, is working on the second volume. Um, that, uh, I want to say is going to be out maybe late next year or early 2023, you know, um, but yeah, yeah, no ETA on the 2000s volume, but I am working on it. So, and, uh, after the uh, success of the other volumes, was that an easy sell to John or was he still like, I don't know, that's not my, not my wheelhouse because we usually kind of butt up against the 2000s. Um, it, it, pretty easy. Yeah. Pretty easy. I mean, I guess when you already have an established library, it makes sense to keep going at that point. Yeah, yeah. And as I said, we're yeah, yeah. Again, on on the assumption that okay, well, but like you like you just said, well, people, you know, <laughs> the completists are, are not going to you know pass it. But you know, it's also it is a, it is a pretty fascinating uh, you know decade, the the two thousands. So. I'll make sure to avoid describing my trip to the 2003 San Diego Comic-Con. <laughs> you know, I don't want to make it about me. <laughs> no one wants to read about me. That's also, I'll put it that way. Well, it's, I mean, it's interesting to bring that up because obviously the, the, the conventions are an interesting part of comic book history as well. Yes. Um, and, yes. and again, as you know, something like San Diego obviously changes and evolves as you go in, you move through the 2000s it becomes a completely you know big pop culture event as opposed to the comic book event maybe it started as so I'm, I'm, I'd yeah. be interested to kind of chart the evolution of that as well yeah yeah yeah, yeah definitely um, yeah I mean that's that would make for either a very fascinating say back issue article or you know there might be enough there for a book you know just the evolution of the comic book convention yeah in many ways I mean it's again uh, San Diego Comic Con again pre-pandemic started to become a bit exhausting you know I mean it was it's just so many people and uh, just moving yourself around the floor becomes it's it's like you know navigating a Tokyo subway you know Mm -hmm. it's really just trying to you know you're just surrounded by humanity 
I know it's not uh, not nearly as as large, but I had been to a, a number of uh, Toronto's fan expos over the years. And yeah, uh, Toronto's got a big one. Yeah, I know there's, there's a big one that uh, yeah, the Fan Expo is the Fan Expo, a pretty yeah. big one. It's interesting too because I remember I went to the second annual Canadian National Comic Book Expo. I think that's what they called it. It eventually became Fan Expo, uh, which is uh, okay. well, rolls off the tongue a little easier. Um, <laughs> right. But uh, like I remember way back in the day, and like you know, it was relatively cheap to get in. And I remember as a kid, I'd go with like twenty bucks in my pocket. I think five bucks got me in for the day. And I could re- spend the rest on comics, and then it got to that right. point in the kind of late 2000s, early 2010s, where I was like, you know, I don't. How are kids ever going to come to this? Like, it's a, you know, yeah. it's a prestige. It's like you know, fifty it, bucks a day. And, well, exactly. Yeah, yeah. it's fifty yeah. bucks a day to get in. Now you're locked into this convention center. Everything's overpriced in terms of food, and then you also, you know, what what are you going to do? Uh, and how, how much are you going to be able to buy? But obviously, right. it's still popular, and people, people still go. But you know, again, it, for that, I always feel bad for you know if i was a kid now how would i would i be able to go i don't think my parents would have paid you know 50 bucks for me to go somewhere for a day yeah although after a pandemic they might have so (laughs) yeah i know that's that's the interesting thing is uh what the what the attendance is you know because now these these cons are starting up again and uh so what's the attendance going to be i mean i think there's a lot excuse me there's a lot of comic book fans they can't wait you know I mean they're 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 going to jump at the chance to uh, you know go to their you know attend their favorite uh, convention but I would assume the organizers are going to have some some real hesitancy at at, uh, at allowing their events to be as packed as they were pre-pandemic yeah but at the same time they need to you know they, they've been shuttered for a while right so like right it, it's, a, it's right. a really interesting push and pull because on the one hand you know is this safe is this a good idea to have you know are people even going to be comfortable that the talent going to be comfortable coming in and being exposed in such a wide range to so many people in a tight space again which used to be normal yeah. and we never thought anything about it although it may right. have been exhausting at times but at the same time right. we haven't had an event for a while like I um uh, I know someone who used to run a ticketing company for you know events in Toronto, Ontario, and you know he'd been in business for like I think thirty years, and he had to close up shop. He was done um, because there was no events, and suddenly his enti- right. his entire business was was null and void. There was no events yep. going on anywhere, and he was just done. Right. Was, uh, thirty years, like, and that was. It's not like one of those things where you could have been like, oh well, eventually events will just stop. Like that, like, no one could have predicted that, and yet. He, sure. was, he was, you know, out of business. So I'm, I'm really curious, and that's obviously going to be a big driver. Is people need to start making money again, and as much as yep. they might be uncomfortable, and again, hard conversations with the talent they're bringing in to be comfortable to do it. That's the only way they can make the money back. I think you're going to say, you know, there's going to be a significant number of, you know, quote unquote, older creators. Hmm. Who I mean, and uh, a few of them have told me privately. They're like, they are. There is no way that they're going to attend these shows because they just don't want to risk their health. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can understand. I can appreciate that. You know, um, uh, we'll see if that attitude changes in the upcoming months. As I knock on wood, feel we're you know turning a corner in in our you know battle against the yeah. The virus, 
But, uh, you know, here's hoping. Yeah, it's interesting because um, I feel like uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, I remember having a lot of conversations with people and then being like, well, I don't know how fast people are going to want to get back to, to doing things because of this. And I feel like the longer everyone kind of felt shuttered in and not, unable to do things, the more that desire to do anything started to just grow. And so I think now the conversation's like, well, how many things are you going to do? <laughs> like, you're going to do everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, yeah we, we've, all, we've all gotten so crazy. And well, exactly. Yeah. Whereas, again, early, it was, you know, oh, maybe you won't be comfortable. But now everyone's like, no, just let me out of my house. Let me go places. Exactly. Let me get on a plane. Let me yeah. go travel. Let me do everything yeah. I want to do. Because I've just, you know, had a year, year and a half where I've just been stuck and can't do anything. Yep. Hey, full disclosure, my, you know, an, an hour before our conversation started, my wife and I booked a flight to uh, Vegas for August. You know, we were doing a week in Vegas because <laughs> we're one of those people where we're just like, you know what, we, we got to... We got to get out of this town. Oh, for sure. you know, I, <laughs> we've memorized every blade of grass in this town. <laughs> well, absolutely. Yeah. Well, again, Keith, thank you so much for taking so much time out of your day today to chat about your books and. and hey, no, but listen. This is my pleasure. I, I can listen. I can talk all day about this stuff, and and uh, and I'll tell you now. Listen, edit edit this the way you want. You know, obviously, we've been going on for ninety minutes. You know, if, if you know, you edit. This is your show. You know, if if you want to edit this down to forty five minutes, you go right ahead. It's, oh it's, God, no! You know, you you edit it the way that you want to edit it. You know, oh, I I I like no. I to be honest, I I do a very bare minimum of editing because I just find I like the raw conversation. I like everything. Okay, um, I've always I, I like that more in the podcast I listen to. I like it when it doesn't feel as curated yeah. or as edited, and I like to. It's kind of like your your book where you have people doing very raw and talking about very raw kind of topics in that implosion book because they're just talking to fan press, I guess. And they just, it's it feels so uncensored. I like to get as much of that idea across. Okay. Listen, I mean, yeah, I I leave it to you. You know, if you, if you feel your audience can, can handle this long of, uh, of a conversation, then it's, you know, it's completely, it's, I, I, I would not, I would not be offended in any way if you, you know, tried to whittle it down. So, I mean, that's no problem. I'll say two things. One, um, I had a, a three-hour uh, with Chip Sadarsky actually in my house on my couch once, so if people can listen to that, I think an hour is fine. Okay. Uh, and <laughs> That's you know, true. I was talking to Bob Budiansky recently, and he was mentioning that he had just watched over many days the, I guess, the nine-hour Jim Shooter interview on Comic Book Historians. Um, oh, okay. Which I have not I have not endeavored to watch all nine hours yet. Um Right, but, but that's definitely on my eventual list. <laughs> that I mean, geez, that man's been interviewed so many times now. I'm, I'm shocked that he agrees to anymore. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's Jim Shooter. I mean, he always, you know, Jim. Jim always wants to make sure that his point of view is presented. But still, I mean, the the, the number of interviews I see uh, of Jim is, you know, astounding. I mean, when you're that uh, polarizing uh, again, a figure, I wouldn't, blame, I wouldn't blame him. We're just like, no, I'm done. I'm done talking. <laughs> you know? Well, especially because he's been in yeah. the industry since he was what, thirteen? Like, yes, right. Like, yes. It's funny you mentioned earlier um, about you know that most people can't just you know call up DC Comics and I want to write something for you. But apparently, if you're 13 years old in the 60s, you can just send in a lot of really yes. good ideas. Right. Yeah. I mean, obviously, completely different era. But I do remember it wasn't, you know, um, you know, like now DC and Marvel don't even, they don't accept pitches from anybody. Mm. They, you know, they, they flat out said, look, we'll find you. 
you you do your own thing and we'll find you yeah um but yeah like you said 50 years ago you had you know jim shooter and carrie bates and other people you know sending in could these cover ideas and or just story ideas and you know getting employed that way that's an interesting you know recruitment technique but okay (laughs) it worked yeah it worked it worked. I would say no it's question. A, I would say, say it changed the industry. I mean, Shooter is such a huge figure in oh. in you know in Marvel's history that I mean, I can't even imagine it without him. Yeah, uh, you you have to you'd be hard pressed to find a more controversial figure, more controversial and um, significant you know mm-hmm. figure than Jim Shooter. For sure. You know, I mean, there's there's, there's plenty of controversial creators, but. None of them have made the impact that he did. No, that's true. Yeah. Right. Well, I will. So. I will let you get back to your evening. I promise. I'll let you know when the okay. episode does go up. It'll probably be in the next four or five days. Um, okay. But again, thank you so much. It's been uh, a tremendous pleasure. And again, I'm really enjoying your books. Uh, the yeah, listen, I really, I really appreciate the support. I mean, that's you know, and and for you know, really appreciate you reaching out to me. Absolutely. You know. Well, thank you so much. 